So this morning we start a new series. And if you know me, you know this is by far my favorite time of the year. I love Christmas time. I love the lights. I love the trees. My house was decorated and everything this past week. And I absolutely love this time of year. And part of it is because of my experiences growing up as a kid. I remember Christmas being such a big deal in our home with the presents and going to see lights and, and all those types of things that you do during Christmas, the parties. But one of the things that was really special growing up as a kid was getting to open presents with our family. My mom and my dad made a really big deal out of, out of Christmas, and we loved celebrating. And we had a, a couple of different traditions, but probably my favorite was every year on Christmas Eve, we always open our Christmas presents on Christmas morning, but on Christmas Eve, our parents would let us open one gift. And on one particular Christmas Eve, my parents let us open a gift actually another day earlier, so two days before Christmas. But this present was for a very specific reason. We were going to a funeral one afternoon, and I did not have a coat hat, and gloves, which my mom had gotten me for Christmas, evidently, because that's what you get your kids for Christmas. And so the present I got to open on Christmas Eve, Eve that year, was a coat and hat and gloves. And I was so excited getting to open them until I got inside and saw what it was. And then I was just devastated that I didn't get to open a toy. I mean, and I think I was probably eight, nine, ten years old at this time. So, of course, you know, I wanted a new Nintendo system or video game or, or something like that. But I didn't get it. The other time I really remember was I think I was 13 or 14. And I've told this story several times, so if you're older and you've been here a while, you've probably heard me tell this story. But I saw a commercial on TV where a dad sneaks into his living room when everyone's asleep. He goes and he gets a a present from out under the tree that's to him, and he takes a knife, and he cuts the tape on the end of it. He opens up the end of the package to look inside to find out what he gets. And then he closes it back up and tapes it off. And I thought that is the most brilliant idea in the history of the world. And so when my parents were gone to work, I mean, I got to go home after school every day. So my parents were at work. I went in the living room. I found a present that I was really curious about, and I got a knife, and I cut it open, and I opened it up. And you only know, for that Christmas, I got a telephone. Not a cell phone, a phone that goes in your room and plugs into your wall with a cord that you could talk to and talk on. And I was so, so excited. So I closed it back up and I taped it. And Christmas morning came and I couldn't wait to open up my presents until I got to that one. And I'll tell you, the excitement was gone. Because I already knew what it was. And in a way, I was really excited to get a phone that went into my room that I could talk to my friends on. 
But the other, I was really disappointed that the excitement and the surprise of a present was gone. One of the things for me with Christmas is seeing the excitement now of my kids getting to open presents. Things that they had hoped for and asked for getting to have. God tells us that the world is supposed to look a certain way. But for us as the people of God, we spend so much time waiting and wondering for that world that God imagined. The world that God intended for us to live in. The world he intended for us as Christians to create. A world that is in chaos and turmoil. That seems broken and full of despair. And yet for followers of Jesus, we live with a hope and anticipation that things will one day be the way they were supposed to be. Things would be set right. Enter the prophets. This was their role in the world, to help the people of God reimagine the world the way that God intended it to be, the way he called his people to help it look, to function, for his people to be that light in the world that stood out and were different. The prophet's role was to purge our, excuse me, to plunge us into an immense and staggering mystery of a world created by God. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. The prophets had two specific roles. The first was this, to help people see the worst not as a religious or political catastrophe, but as God's judgment. And when we say that, there's two things that we have in mind when we talk about God's judgment. First, God's judgment is restorative, not retributive. In other words, God's judgment in his punishment is not just simply, I'm going to get them back because they have messed up. But it is intended to form a people. And so his judgment, his punishment comes as a way to help people see a new world to help restore them, to help them be the people of God in this world. And secondly, it comes with this hope that this people would develop the world, would build the world, would create the world with him as he intended it to be. And, and so often, God's judgment, God's punishment of his people comes through natural consequences. Where God says, you follow my will, my ways, and your life will look a certain way. But if you go down this path, if you take this road, then destruction will fall, follow. And so often, I think we find ourselves in these places of trouble, questioning and wondering where God is. When we've taken the roads he's told us not to take, 
He's asked us not to walk down, to follow him, to follow his will and his ways. And the second role of the prophet is to help people who were beaten down to open themselves up to hope in God's future and the invitation to join him in his work. To speak hope where all you see is despair. To see a world that is broken and void of hope and to speak hope that there is a new day coming. That the way things are now is not the way they will always be. And so now enter the prophet Isaiah, who we're going to spend some time with over the next month as we wait for the arrival of a baby. A baby promised to bring hope into this world, to bring peace and justice. And Isaiah is going to confront the people of Judah, this nation, for failing to be a people that is set apart, for failing to be the people of God and represent God in this world. Because the purpose of God's people in this world is so that the world would see them and know what God is like. And so Isaiah is going to confront these people who claim to be the people of God but are not living as the people of God with this prophetic imagination, asking them to turn, return to God so that they will represent him in this world. So that the people of God would live like the people of God. And if you were to look at all of the sins of Judah, of Israel, I think categorically there are two sins that seem to plague this nation in so many different forms, so many different ways, over and over and over again. The first is idolatry, choosing to put their hope and trust in something or someone else other than God, their creator. Choosing to put their trust, their hope, their lives in the hands of someone other than God. First and foremost is idolatry. And second is justice. Failing to be God's representative in this world. Failing to create the world that God imagined. Failing to take care of the widow and the orphan, and the alien, and the poor, and the oppressed, and siding with people of power and control. Idolatry and justice seem to be the two large categorical sins that Judah continually finds themselves tripped up in, which I think we can all relate to. continually trying to put our hope and trust in something and someone else other than God and forgetting to look out for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the alien. 
continually failing to represent God in this world. And so with this amazing prophetic imagination, Isaiah is going to challenge the people of Judah to live as the people of God. So we're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 3. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Verse 5, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. My guess is, if you are like me, that is a world that you cannot imagine. A world completely void of war, of dispute, because God's justice has come over this world and his world is as it should be. And we have lost our ability to imagine a world other than what exists here and now, what we see every day. But God is going to use the prophets to purge our imaginations of the world's assumptions by calling us back to his will and his way to separate the people from the culture that they live in, to allow them to be set apart, to be different than everyone else, to bring us back to the way of Jesus. That is the role that Isaiah will play. But we wait. We, we wait with expectation of God's coming into this world. Not necessarily his coming just as a baby born in Bethlehem in a manger in the small corner of a massive global empire. But also the reminder that he's promised to come again. That he's going to come back but then not just simply that one day off in the future that God is going to come into our world again, but the reminder that God comes into our world every single day. And the question of the season as we wait for Christmas is, are you prepared for God's coming in this world? Are you prepared to see it? Are you prepared to join him in that work? I, I jokingly tell my wife quite often, one of my favorite things about hosting our small group in our home is it forces us to clean our house. Because when you have four kids, your house typically looks like a time bomb went off. A few weeks ago, I think someone came over in the middle of the day and they walked into our house and they said, I am so glad to see your house looks like this. 
I'm not. I like it to be clean and in order. And as we wait for Christmas, as we wait for the arrival of Christ in our world, we ask this question, is your home ready? Or is your life full of chaos and turmoil and disorder? Or is it prepared for the coming of a king? Are you awaiting with great expectation Christ's work in this world? See, Isaiah gets a glimpse of this world, a world where Christ is king in a way that maybe none of us will ever get to see. And he starts out like this, in the year that King Uzziah died. And just real simple, King Uzziah was a king of Judah. And King Uzziah lived, or reigned, I'm sorry, over Judah for 52 years. And for all accounts was a very good king. He subdued the Philistines. He built a strong defense and a well-equipped army. He strengthened the economy. But there was one thing that led to the downfall of King Uzziah. And I want to just read you just a little portion from 2 Chronicles of his life. So in chapter 26, verse 15, as he's built this massive nation, this following, his fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped, referring to God helping him, until he became powerful. And in verse 16, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride, his pride led to his downfall. And he was unfaithful going on, unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So as he becomes powerful, his pride leads to his downfall. And he enters in to the temple, to the altar of incense, where only the priest is supposed to burn incense. And he begins doing the role of the priest. And the priest, Azariah, comes in and confronts him. And instead of saying, you know, you're right. This is not my role. This is not my place. He becomes angry. And he refuses to surrender that power. He refuses to honor God's way. And immediately, verse 21, King Uzziah had leprosy. He was struck with leprosy immediately. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and banned from the temple of the Lord, 
Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. The result for King Uzziah. He does not take away his kingship, but he strickens him with leprosy and removes him from the people. And my question, well, does God give up on Uzziah? Does he wipe his hands of what Uzziah represents as he leads the people? Because one of the greatest problems in Israel and in Judah is the people of God have followed the way of Uzziah. And they let power and prestige become their aim. And they have failed to honor the ways of God, to be the people of God in this world. He gets a position of power, and he uses it for his own good. And, And I wonder for Uzziah, for the people of Judah, if they don't start to live in the world with such despair that the way things are now is the way they will always be? Do you live your life with a sense of despair, of hopelessness, that the way things are now, what you see every day in our world is the way things will always be? Because it's easy when you wake up day after day after day to start to think this is the way things are supposed to be. There is no other way. And to imagine a world that Isaiah talks about in the midst of this world where swords are turned into plowshares, where people are laying down their weapons and there is no war. Seems like a complete impossibility. But it is the prophetic imagination of a world set right. A world that is the way God intended it to be. And so you and I, with Isaiah, with the people of Judah, we wait. We wait in great expectation. And maybe one of the the most important things we walk away from with is the waiting room can be God's most productive workroom. As we wait for the diagnosis, as we wait for the final chapter, as we say goodbye to a loved one, as we watch people suffer, as we see a world in turmoil and chaos and hope, and we wait for something better. The waiting room can be God's most productive workroom. 
Because it's in the waiting where we are stripped of all of our power, all of our pride, all of our self-assurance that we can make it on our own. And it's in the waiting that we are reminded that we are people who are completely dependent on the power of Christ in this world. That Isaiah's prophetic imagination is not going to come true because we live good Christian lives, because we try harder to be the people of God. But the world that he imagined is going to come in power and strength because of God's Spirit and His power. It is a place of despair. It is a place of hopelessness. It is a place of pain and despair. But it's the waiting room that God tends to do His greatest and most productive work in our life. So Uzziah has allowed pride to lead to his downfall. And he's forced to wait. He's forced to wait on God to rescue and redeem. Going back to Isaiah's vision, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted and on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Almighty have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew with me or to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And in this powerful scene, as Isaiah comes face to face with God on his throne, these winged creatures flying around are calling out, Holy, holy, holy. The word in Hebrew is kadosh. It means holy or set apart. It's something other than what we are. It's not derived from what we are or what we have. It's other than us. 
And then the word for glory is kavod. It means weight or significance. It's translated glory. And so holy is this idea that it's set apart. It's something other than what we are. But glory has weight or significance to it. We can, it's tangible. You can touch it. You can see it. You can hold it. And so there is holiness of God and there is the glory of God. And as we gather to worship, understand both of them are here in this place, the holiness of God and the glory of God. You see the glory of God on the people gathered in this room. Have you ever thought, like, look at the person next to you just for a moment. Just look at the person. They are a miracle of God. And you see his glory as you look at them, as you see them. But what Isaiah finds in that moment is he is confronted with his own sinfulness because he sees this holy God and he understands that he does not belong in his presence. And then he gets to see his glory in a really tangible way through his grace. As he cleanses him of his sins. As he sets him free from his past. And he allows him to remain in his presence. You know, often I'll talk to people who don't come to church because they say when they come, they feel guilty. And that guilt, while I don't think we're supposed to live in it, is a good thing because the guilt reminds us of who we are before God. And that we fall before the throne of a God who is loving and just, but a God who is full of grace and mercy. And you don't get to see the weight and the significance of His grace and mercy unless you're able to acknowledge your sinfulness. If sinfulness is just something that other people who aren't here do and who they are, then the weight and significance of God's glory through His grace really doesn't mean that much to you. But if you, like Isaiah, see the holiness of God, if you're confronted with it, you get to fulfill the full weight of His glory through His grace as He forgives His people. We get to see the beauty of God coming into this world in a really tangible way. 
And the problem that Isaiah is confronting the people with is they refuse to acknowledge their sinfulness and return to the ways of God. That idolatry and justice are something that they continually neglect. Continually trusting in things other than God. Putting their hope and trust in something other than God to save them. And continually failing to live as the people of God in this world. And Isaiah's vision is going to be filled with so much despair. So much what seems like hopelessness. And God tells Isaiah, you are going to go to the people of Judah and you are going to confront them on the way that they are living their life. And you are going to call them back to my ways to live as the people of God in this world. And here's Isaiah's response. Then I said, for how long, Lord? Because he tells them, you're going to speak to them. And they're not going to listen. They're going to turn their back on you and what you say, but ultimately on me. And Isaiah's question is, how long am I going to do this, Lord? God answers, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. This prophetic imagination of the world that God imagined seems to be a world filled with despair. Because of what the people have done. Because of how they have lived. This land is going to be left desolate. This Davidic dynasty that promised so much hope is going to seemingly be wiped out. There are going to be stumps in this land. But from those stumps will come a holy seed. From those stumps, from that desolation, from that despair, there will spring up hope. How long? How long do I keep this message? Let me just remind you, Isaiah lives and prophesies during the 8th century B.C. How long? Oh God, do we have to wait? 
How long do we have to wait for you to show up in this world? How long will we continue to ignore your word? How long, O oh Lord, will we continue to follow our own ways, our own plans, devise our own rescue? How long, O oh Lord, will it last? God tells him. Tell everything. It's laid waste. Until all the kings and rulers have been cut down. But out of those stumps will come a holy seed that will bring hope into this world. And so he tells him, I'm going to give you a sign. Chapter 7, verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive. And give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is this powerful name that literally means God with us. You ask, how long, O oh Lord, must we wait? How long do we wait for your justice? How long do we wait for this world to be put right? Until everything is decimated. Until people seem like they're without hope and void of hope. And live in despair. Does God say, here and now, I'm done with these people. I'll wash my hands of them. I'll cast them out of my presence. Away with them. They cannot stand before me. He does the exact opposite. He doesn't promise to desert them in the waiting room. Instead, he promises his presence. See, here's the beauty of God's coming into this world is not that someday off in the future if we live a good life, God will come and rescue. But the hope, the promise of God's coming into this world is that He will be with us now, today, to live as the people of God in this world. And it's in that waiting that He will transform us. He will change us. And let me just say to you right now, who, who is waiting for something, maybe God is using this time to transform your life. Maybe He's using this time to confront us 
of our sinfulness so that we see the beauty and weight of His grace in our life. See, but here's the problem with the prophets. If we insist on understanding them before we live into them, we will never get them. We must live into the world that Isaiah imagines before we ever begin to see it come true. Again, not through your strength and not through your power, but through God's presence with you, among us, with us, with His Spirit at work in our lives. And as we wrap up this morning, I just want to ask a question. Is your house, your spiritual house, prepared for the coming of the King? Has it been made ready? Is it awaiting His presence? Is it ready to partner with Him as He comes into this world day after day? Is our heart prepared that we can actually see His presence? Or is it so dirty, cluttered, and busy that we don't even notice He's near? And over the next several weeks, we're just going to simply deal with those questions. Is your spiritual house ready for the coming of the King? Is it ready for God's coming into our world? Not just simply as a baby. Not just simply coming back someday as the rightful King. But ready for God to come into our world today. Tomorrow through his people, to represent him, to live as the people of God in this world? Or, like Uzziah, have you come to a place where power and control and comfort and idolatry and injustice mark your life. Uzziah's response is get away from me. You cannot confront me with that. But Isaiah's response is woe is me. I am a people, a man of unclean lips, and so are my people. Father, when we are confronted with your beauty, 
your holiness. Help us to see our sinfulness. To not just be your holiness is just something we talk about. But Father, something we see, we know, and it transforms our life. Father, we thank you that your reaction was not what ours would probably be to desert these people, to give up on them, to send them away, to wash your hands of us, but instead to come to us, to send your presence into our world, into our life, for the dream, for the vision of a kingdom that you were willing to die for. And Father, we thank you. Father, we pray today that we would once again bow to King Jesus and to let go of all of our sinfulness and trust once again as you and you, Savior and King. Father, that we may see the beauty and the glory of your grace. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.